that, I'm going to invite us to stand for this morning's scripture reading from the Gospel of Mark. We're reading from chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Mark 10, 13 through 31. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. We did a sermon series a couple of years ago about so-called spiritual disciplines. We called the series Rhythms of Grace. But um, if you're familiar with spiritual disciplines, by those we mean things like prayer and reading scripture and fasting and feasting and um, being generous and all these things. Some Christians call them spiritual disciplines or means of grace. And we talked about how to get into the rhythm of doing these things together. But if you were with us, it was about two years ago and we, we went over them again last year to a certain extent. But the main thing I wanted to hit in that series, maybe it stuck, maybe it didn't. I'm going to give it another shot here. Is when you think about the word discipline in the Christian life, like what are the things that Christians do? Disciplines. Uh, what you want to highlight there in that word disciplines is the word disciple. 
disciplines. Because at the end of the day, all these disciplines, prayer, reading scripture, fasting, gathering for corporate worship, having spiritual friendships, being generous, serving the poor, all this stuff, the point isn't just becoming really, really good at doing stuff. Being able to check the box to say, I'm really good at prayer now. Praise God, I'm good at praying. The whole point is to grow in being a disciple, which means to follow, to follow Jesus. If you miss the person of Jesus in all of your living out spirituality, in all of your efforts to become a good person or to be a good Christian, if you miss Jesus in all that, and that's very possible to do, you've missed everything. The point is Christ. Prayer should lead to Jesus. Studying God's word should lead us to Jesus. Fasting should lead us to Jesus and his grace and his beauty and his love in our efforts to grow in any discipline or just to abstractly try to become a better person somehow. If you miss Jesus, you miss everything. It's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. Think about it this way. If you were to go get married and you were to have all these wonderful wedding photos taken, but you actually didn't really like the person you were going to get married to and you went home and you looked at all these amazing photos, you kind of missed the point. You missed the person. So this is a story about a, a, a rich man. The Gospel of Luke and Matthew tell the same story. Luke refers to him as a ruler, and the Gospel of Matthew calls him young. Here he's just called rich. He's come to be known for those reasons as the rich young ruler, even though not all of those words are given in the Gospel of Mark. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus with the question, what do I lack? What am I missing? You might have actually come to church today with that question, or maybe you've come exploring Christianity or Jesus with the question, um, God, if you're there, I feel like I'm missing something. I, I feel like I'm trying to do life as best as I can, but I feel like there's this great big lack still in my life. So he comes to Jesus, falls on his knees, addresses him as good teacher, and I'll just, I'll read the rest of verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, by the way, this is on the bulletin if you didn't get it on the way in. If you did, it's on page two. The man ran up and knelt before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm just paraphrasing the next few verses, okay? This man comes to him on his knees, says, Jesus, I believe in eternal life. Or another way of translating it is something like the life of the age to come. And some are going to receive eternal life and some aren't. All that is obviously implied in his question. And I still, I feel like there's something that I lack. There's something between me and eternal life. And I want you to tell me what that is. Good teacher, can you help me? And Jesus responds in verse 17 saying, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, God alone. And Jesus goes on to say, look, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And he lists off a couple of the 10 commandments. And this rich young ruler says back to Jesus, I know all of those and I've kept them my whole life. I feel like I'm still missing something. And Jesus doesn't disagree with him. 
He doesn't disagree that there is something between this man who's been trying to be good his whole life, and there's still a gap between him and life eternal. Just before, before moving on, uh, it's worth noting that in the text, and this is there in all the three Gospels that have this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, the rich young ruler doesn't respond to Jesus' first comment, which is a really interesting comment. This man says, Jesus, you are a good teacher. That's how he addresses him. Good teacher. How do I get to eternal life? And Jesus says back to him, why do you call me good? The man never really responds to this comment from Jesus. What is Jesus trying to get at when he says, you know, there's only one who's good, right? Is Jesus trying to say, I'm not actually good? Or um, if you want good instruction on the kingdom of God, go, go to someone else? This is what I think the point is. It seems like this man who's been very clearly from the text, been trying really hard his whole life to be good, and he's still missing something. Jesus is trying to say, there's something wrong with your definition of good. So when you come to me as good teacher, you think I'm just gonna teach you one more good thing, that if you do that one more good thing, it's gonna be enough that for the rest of your life you'll be able to point at that one good deed and say that is the basis for which I know I will have eternal life. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Jesus is trying to say, trying to convey, there are no, there's no string of good deeds you can put together and point to to say this will earn me heaven. Let me put it this way. Um, and I know I've used this illustration before. It's one of my favorite children's books, and we are knee-deep in children's books in my house. It's a book by Eric Carle called Papa Get the Moon for Me. And it's about a child who says to uh, a parent, Papa, can you go climb a ladder and get the moon and bring it down to me? And the father says, okay. And he builds a really long ladder, and he climbs up a ladder all the way to the moon and gets a piece of the moon, waits for it to wane down all the way to a sliver, if you've read the book, and brings it down to this child. It's a kid's story, it's ridiculous. It's, it's actually, though, a pretty good picture of what would be involved if you or I were to say, God, look, I'm good enough to please you. If the goodness God requires is, say, up in heaven, you and I would have to climb a ladder to the moon to accomplish the goodness he requires. It's not possible. Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned, everyone, and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a, it's a bridge that's needed to cross between your goodness and the goodness God requires, and only God can cross it for you. Jesus is trying to point out from the outset that this man has a poor conception of goodness. It's bound up somehow with an action he has to accomplish. So that's the guy's first problem. Jesus goes on. Jesus says in verse 21, you do lack one thing. You have to go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Jesus says, the one thing you lack is to sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Is Jesus saying, 
if you give all, of you, all that you have to the poor, that will be the one final thing you need to do in order to inherit eternal life. No. And we know this, but we're going to get there at the end of the passage. There are two things that Jesus is doing to this rich man who's been trying to good his, be good his whole life. There are two things he's trying to do when he tells him to sell everything he has. First, Jesus knows something about this guy's relationship to his wealth. Jesus is showing this man that his problem is deeper than he thinks. Wealth seems to be this guy's whole life. And when he hears that he has to get rid of it, he walks away sad. I think, I think part of the lesson here is that when you come to Jesus, one of the first things he often does is show you that your need for him is deeper than you've yet imagined. If you come to Jesus, if you come to church today, and you say, Lord, I feel like there's something that I lack. It's not like he's going to give you one piece of advice. He's going to keep saying things like, leave everything to follow me. He's not going to give you one thing to accomplish this week, and then the next week another, and the next week another. He's going to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's going to say things like he says in the Gospel of John. I am the gate. You can get all these wonderful instructions that'll help you a little, but if you've gone through the wrong door that you think leads to life, it'll lead you to nowhere. Let me put it this way. If you go to a doctor looking for a prescription for a little bit of medication, and the physician actually says, you know what, you need surgery. You need more treatment than you thought. That's hard news, but it's also good news. It's gracious bad news. You know, when Karen and I moved into a house about six years ago, we thought we were going to do a little re re renovation on a, on a room that needed some work, but actually we found out that there was actually no foundation under that room. The only thing holding that room onto the rest of the house was some shingles. That if the shingles were to be removed, the whole room would slide onto the ground from the second floor to the first. I'm not joking. And somehow we missed this on inspection. And so they had to tear down that room and the floor below it and pour new footers and rebuild the entire thing. And that was terrible news. It wasn't in the budget. But I would say it's actually gracious bad news. Jesus says you don't need a new application. You need a new operating system. You don't need a bit of good advice. You need to leave everything, 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 and follow me. That's the first thing he's doing. He's graciously saying it's worse than you think. But here's the second thing. And I think it's easy to miss the real point of Jesus' response to him. Read with me again. What Jesus says to him in verse 21, you need all of it. You need the whole phrase. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. He actually says a number of things there, not just one thing that he lacks. If there is one thing that he lacks, it's the come and follow me part. He needs to divest himself because Jesus knows about this guy. You can't carry all of the wealth and the protection that it represents in your life and the meaning that it gives you and carry it through the door of the kingdom of God. Because frankly, you're you need to be instructed in the news that I am your only hope. The whole point of getting rid of everything isn't so that he can sit at home self-satisfied that he's a good person and he's been generous to the poor, although that's important. 
The whole point of getting rid of something is that he would be unhindered to come and follow Jesus. Again, the point isn't just be generous. The point is be generous because in so doing, it'll help lead you to the heart of Jesus. The point is come to Jesus. The point is come to Jesus, cling to the king. And somehow Jesus knew that this man's wealth would hinder him from being a disciple. If you would enter the kingdom, this man has to trust Jesus and not his wealth. And so to kind of bring it down to home for all of us, this is the question. It's a big, broad, general question, but it's an important one for, for us to ask corporately and individually. For this man, it was his many possessions that kept him from following. What is it for you? What inhibits you from simply following Jesus? Is it money? Is it possessions? Is it relationships? Is it a degree? Is it status? Is it the plans you have for your life that really, really, really need to be not interrupted by Jesus, the interrupter? There's a, there's a book that's sold millions and millions and millions of copies, probably just short of the number of copies that the Bible has moved. Um, it's by Stephen Covey, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly, oh gosh, what is it? Influential. Effective. I always say influential. I've been corrected like a thousand times. I've read it. Highly effective people. And if you've read it or if you've seen many of his videos, he's got this illustration of um, a big glass jar. And um, alongside the, the, the jar, there are all these big rocks and little rocks all the way down to little grains of sand. And he does this experiment. He says, picture all the grains of sand or like all your unanswered emails and all the, all the little things that people put on you from day to day that they really need your attention. And if you, if you let those come first, let's say you put that in your jar of time first. And then there's all the little rocks that are things that are kind of important. And, you know, if you don't do them, they'll be some consequences, let's say you put those rocks in the jar of your time. The jar represents your time and energy. And then finally you get to the big rocks. The big rocks, and those represent the most important things in your life. If you put the sand and the little rocks in first, the big rocks will actually never fit. And then he does this little experiment where he's like, actually if you put the big rocks in first, then you know, all the sand and the little rocks, they actually have a way of sifting down around the things that never move. And the point is this. Jesus would say, I am the big rock, to use a different illustration, like picture like stones in a river. Jesus is like the boulder that everything else in life rushes around. He's the big thing that doesn't move. He, if, if he is first, all of the other things really do fall into place. You just have to decide, is he worth it? That's what this man had to decide. And Jesus is saying, I'm worth it, and actually salvation will only be found in me. And if you can't get that order right, if you try to make these lesser things the most important thing in your life, you will be harassed by lesser gods until the day you die, and it might cost you your salvation. It's all about me. It's only about me. It's always about me, Jesus says. 
If you get me, you will get all other things that flow from the fountain of life along with me. If you miss me, you will miss everything, though you will think you're finding little flecks of life and the lesser joys around you. I want to end like this, folks. One thing that's really clear about the story about the rich young ruler is that this is not just a problem for rich people. It seems like in scripture, riches are like the main handicap. There's just no getting around it. One in six things that Jesus says in the four gospels are about money. He talks about money all the time. There's something so ultimate about how we find identity in money, how uh, just the, we can't imagine losing it. Um, it is the criteria by which we judge everything else, more so than relationships and other kinds of dreams and ways we find security. It is, in certain ways, harder for wealthy people to perceive their, their need for Jesus Christ. It really seems like throughout history it has been. And proportionately, we're the 1%. Not everyone in this room is rich relative to other people around you in this room or in the city, but around the world. When you look at the whole world, we really are rich. So this is a message for you. But the really interesting thing about this passage is that the disciples, who are not on the whole rich men, when Jesus says that famous and perplexing line, you know everybody, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. For a camel to try to enter into this minuscule entryway where it could never ever fit, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are shocked, not just surprised. It says twice, it describes their shock. They are absolutely shocked, why? Because they know that it spells trouble for them too. They say in verse 26, if this is true of rich people, then how can we be saved? It seems like the disciples knew that if this man who's been trying to be good his whole life and happens to be rich, and maybe his riches are a blessing from God somehow, but this guy's been trying really hard his whole life to obey commandments from God. And they say, if this guy can't make it in, how is there any hope for any of us? And Jesus says, exactly. It's impossible with man but then he says, what does he say? Everything is possible with God. It is not possible for you to get to God by your good deeds. It is possible for God to get to you because of his love. And that's what our gospel is all about. That's what our gospel is all about. With God, all things are possible. W.H. Auden has this great poem that we read a lot during Advent, and the title of it is, Nothing That Is Possible Can Save Us. It's an amazing line. Nothing that is possible can save us. He goes on, the dying demand a miracle, and that's the gospel. The Apostle Paul puts the gospel this way, though Jesus was the rich young man, I'm adding a little bit, though Jesus was rich, 2 Corinthians 8, for our sakes, he became poor. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus had a pocket full of cash and he just threw it at us and said, hey, you're rich now? No. He means that Jesus was 
the pre-existent divine son of God who took on flesh and lived among sinners, among people who didn't recognize his goodness, truth, and beauty, who actually crucified him because he kept telling them how much they needed God more than they thought. And they crucified him and he let it happen because at the cross is where we find atonement for all of our sins. At the cross, Jesus makes the impossible possible. Greedy people like us, people who have invested in lesser gods, people who have ignored Jesus, have their sins forgiven. And just as Christ's arms were stretched out on the hard wood of the cross, his arms were open to anyone who would come to him and receive his forgiveness. And those arms were open to you and to me, just as they were on the cross that day. Let me apply it this way, just in closing. There is a really key difference between how Jesus responds to this man in this passage and how he responds to almost everyone else in the gospel who's actually trying to learn of him. Like, I'm not talking about the Pharisees and people who are always trying to get him or kill him or, or, or make him look stupid, but people who come to Jesus honestly trying to learn of him, honestly trying to get close to God through him. This guy stands out for two reasons. One, Jesus says about the hardest thing to him as he says to anyone who basically comes and says, help me. Whenever the, the, the Canaanite woman comes, when blind Bartimaeus, we're gonna to get to him in a few weeks, comes and just says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, I need your help, he just gives it. This man comes and says, help me do better myself so I can please God by my own steam. Jesus lovingly crushes him and says that's never, ever, ever gonna be possible. By the way, this is the only person that it explicitly states in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus loved. Right before Jesus took a deep breath and said these hard words to the man, it says, where is it? To throw away the line. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said, get rid of everything so you can follow me. It's really interesting to me. There's a reason why at the front end of these verses, we read the passage in verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says, if anyone would come and receive the kingdom of God, they must become like a little child. He doesn't say that because all children are really good and obedient. Sorry, kids. He doesn't say that because all kids are perfect all the time and merit the good pleasure of God. No. Why does he say that? Because kids know how to just say, I need. I need. I can't pay. I need. I need. I need. You better believe the gospel writer Mark knew what he was doing when he puts that passage right next to this rich guy who said, show me how to be good enough. Whoever would enter the kingdom of God must receive it as a little child. Brothers and sisters, the call to you today, can you diagnose what you're trusting in more than you trust in Jesus? You might have someone in your life who can help you with that. Could you ask someone close to you who will actually tell you the truth? Look at my life and tell me, what would you guess that I love most? Just by looking at my life. That exposure will be gracious. 
but it will be the grace of God to you if you can bear it. And if you've already come to him and you hear him today saying in these words, through the rich young ruler to you, leave it all and come to me. Leave that pattern of living. Leave that relationship. Leave that love of money. Leave those habits. If you're like me, you might say something like, I don't know if I can do that or I don't know what will happen to me if I risk my finances or my dreams that way. I don't know what will happen to me if I leave everything to follow you. Jesus is famous for saying things like, well, then that's actually the first thing. You were not meant to carry the unbearable load of making sure you're in control of what happens to you. Give that to him first of all. Just come. Come follow. And he will be with you because he loves you. He loves you. And if that happens in your heart today, that would also be the miracle of a camel going through the eye of a needle. The Holy Spirit still makes all things possible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.